I hope that you found a study guide as you were coming in this morning. Our message is entitled, A Savior in a Manger. Let us once again pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to the opening of your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us now. We pray that you might give us insights into this word that have blessed the hearts of men and women through the ages since they were written. And we ask, Lord, that we might receive the challenges that are given to us as we would emulate the behavior of those who first heard the gospel message. So we commit our time to you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, and we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have an introduction, and then we're looking at the intervention of government, the apprehension of parents, the exaltation of angels, and the comprehension of shepherds. Do you think they'll really get it when the message comes? Luke 2:11 For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. There is his title, the Savior, Christ the Lord. So we want to ask this morning the question, what is a Savior? What does that mean to you when you think about Christ our Savior? Because of Jesus, we're saved, but saved from what? Well, different people are thinking about different things when they think about a Savior. Some people think about Christ saving them from some of their circumstances that maybe aren't too pleasant at that time. Uh, Maybe they don't see God's providence in where they are or where they came from or where they're going or what they're supposed to do. Certainly things change in life. But God has a plan, and He's working His plan. Some people would look to Christ to change their circumstances. Some people turn to Christ to save them from people. My boss, who just owned my case all the time. My co-workers, who don't understand me and just uh, really don't uh, relate to me very well. And maybe my parents. Maybe God gave me the wrong parents. Or maybe my spouse. A lady said one time, when I married him, I thought he was the ideal. He turned out to be an ordeal. Now I'm looking for a new deal. Well, we hope it's not going to be like that. But if you don't see God's providence in people in your lives, you might find yourself sliding in that direction. My neighbors. I don't like my neighbors. I need some different neighbors. Maybe I need to Christianize those people. My own desire saved from my own desire desires that have gotten out of control. And we usually don't recognize that they're out of control until they're out of control. Maybe my innocent dereliction turned into a horrendous addiction. And I need Christ to help me with that. And certainly He does help us with our desires. And then how about this one? Saved from hell on my way to heaven. Once saved, always saved. Well, that's very important. And I think Christ works through all of these things. I know that He does. But I think we could miss the primary thing that Christ saves us from, and that is sin. How about saved from sin on my way to holiness? We have said that often. This is the salvation that every man, woman, boy, and girl on earth who ever lived truly needs. You need to be saved from the guilt of sin. You need to be saved from the practice of sin. 
You need to be saved from the ultimate consequence of sin, which would be an eternity apart from God and anything that is good. For us, the word Savior carries the connotation of somebody who helps us out in a tight spot or somebody who we can call on to kind of make things a little bit better. But if you had lived in a different place geographically or at a different time in history, you would look at a Savior in a very different way possibly. In fact, if you'd been living in Jesus' day, you would need deliverance from all kinds of threats, not just a little help maybe on the weekends. Threats of thieves and fanatics, soldiers, tax collectors, terrorists, religious persecution, the government, natural disasters, war, famine, pestilence, death, you name it. When these guys thought about a Savior, they need someone to come in and help them with all those things. Today we have agencies to do that, and we have the government that takes care of us in any kind of disaster. We have all kind of things that would substitute for a Savior. The Hebrew word yosha, to save, conveys the idea of assistance and protection of every kind, deliverance far beyond just rescue from immediate danger. Let's look throughout the Scripture at some of those things, aggressive assistance. Did you ever need any aggressive assistance from a Savior? For the Lord your God is He that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you, Deuteronomy 20 and verse 4. And remember those enemies of ideologies that we fight against today and ideas, taking captive every thought for the obedience of Christ. Protection against attack. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. From Isaiah 26 and verse 1. Victory and the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. In other words, God gave him the victory in 2 Samuel 8, 6. Prosperity, violence shall no more be heard in the land. Wasting nor destruction within thy borders, but thou shalt call thy walls salvation, and thy gates praise. From Isaiah 60, verse 18. So we see that the idea of a Savior in Scripture includes many things, the results of being saved, victory and safety and prosperity and peace and happiness. So you can see that when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the people were lined up there on the roadside shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. You could see that they really were pretty sincere about that. They needed a Savior, someone to save them from their circumstances and people and the various things that they were dealing with in that day. And as they were shouting, they were recalling what they had seen in recent years. Three years, in fact. They had been watching a man who looked like he might be the Savior of Israel. I wonder what was going on in their minds and hearts. Do you ever try to put yourself into the thoughts of someone from another culture? Well, I guess this is what they might have been thinking about. Here's a guy that can really influence public opinion. He can outsmart the religious leaders and the bigwigs with just a spoken word. That's 
pretty good. That's something that they needed because the religious leaders had added all of this burden of men's tradition on their shoulders in addition to what God said in the Scripture. He could predict the future and know things that others didn't know. Some definite market implications. He could heal the sick, cause the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He could even raise the dead. He could heal wounds that had been made by a sword. Some definite military implications there. He could feed thousands of people with a few loaves of barley, barley bread and some fish. There would be some military and civilian possibilities. He had the charisma to sway public opinion as he addressed multitudes of people. Political promise for this young man. This guy could walk on water and even control the forces of nature. How about that for some naval warfare connotations? It wouldn't even need a navy in Israel with what this man could do. But not only that, he came from the house of David, who was a legendary warrior and savior in Israel. He enjoyed patriotic popularity at times among the people. He kept talking about a kingdom, and it certainly wasn't going to have anything to do with that bunch in Rome. This would be a kingdom that would rule from Jerusalem, sovereign rule. So everybody was going wild with excitement on Palm Sunday. Here was a guy that could stand up on top of Mount Tabor and brew up a storm that would destroy all those Roman ships coming across the Mediterranean. And if they happened to be coming in by land, the legions marching down through Palestine, then all he had to do was call for one of those giant hailstorms like God sent in the days of Joshua. Hailstones about the size of your Volkswagen. We're not worried about any enemy armies coming in. If any allies got injured, just send them down to the dispensary, see Jesus. They can be back in action in 15 minutes. So it looks like on occasion that this really is going to be the Savior of Israel. Now, they believed in the supernatural, so they were prepared uh, for the ones who really believed, for some of those supernatural things that they had seen through Moses and Elijah and some of the other men in the Old Testament. This guy was invincible. They could see those Roman eagle standards coming down, being trampled in the dust. And not only that, but peace and prosperity and a chicken in every pot. And you didn't have to raise chickens. If you had one or two birds, this guy could multiply them. And you probably didn't have to pluck them and dress them. And he could probably fry chickens without even building a fire. I mean, he could do amazing things. And the people were prepared for him to do those things on behalf of captive Israel, a little satellite nation. We're talking about a Savior, a genuine Savior. But five days later, when they saw their Savior wearing a crown of thorns, pummeled by the soldiers, silent before Pilate, beaten half to death, they said, wait a minute, that's not my Savior. He doesn't even look like a Savior. He can't even save himself. That guy deserves to be crucified for being an imposter, coming in here claiming to, to be the Jewish Messiah. Well, it's 
Amazing how fast public opinion can change. And, of course, God's in control of that because he was not executed by a vigilante mob. This was God's plan to provide redemption for fallen man. Now, let's ask the question, fast forward a little bit to where we are today. Let's ask the question, what are modern American evangelical churchgoers looking for in a Savior? Are we looking for a fire insurance policy in the sky by and by? Or maybe we are looking for someone who will keep us from going over the financial cliff, whatever that means. Or someone who will come in and save us, fight the enemy of economic deprivation. Someone who will bring me peace and prosperity and lower my taxes and shut down Congress. Now, those might be things that we could pray for and things that we would feel like we could need. But here's the thought you can get a very good idea of what kind of Savior you seek by the flavor of the prayers that you pray. Do I see God as a celestial Santa Claus to whom I will pray something that reads like my own Christmas list? Or do I see Him as the great granddaddy in the sky, just nodding with satisfaction at everything we do and overlooking our indiscretions down here? After all, sheep will be sheep. And we just kind of go along. Or is he the resident policeman to protect me and all my possessions? Or is he the genie in Aladdin's lamp ready to burst out to be summoned and fulfill all my personal wishes? Or do my prayers contain mostly praise and thanksgiving and intercession for others and those kinds of things? Well, the flavor of my prayers indicate to some degree indicates what I'm looking for in a Savior. Well, the intervention of government. Luke 2, 1 and 2. It came to pass in those days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Notice in this passage, as well as hundreds of others, references are made to people and places and events that are firmly rooted in history that you can go back and check out. And some of these things are given hundreds of years before they take place. We call that historical revelation. No other religion really has anything like that, where the prophet is going to prophesy what will happen, and then 700 years later we see that happening. Let me give you an example of another kind of religion. Here's a a quote from the cover of a Hindu book, The Teachings of Lord Kapila. One of my students was in the Atlanta airport one day. This guy gave him the book. It looked kind of weird. He brought it to me. I didn't keep the book, but the cover said, Long ago, in an age we know about only from the epics of ancient India, the great sage Kapila made his appearance on earth. Well, can anyone validate that claim? Is there any way to corroborate the story? Not that I know of. But if you want to find out about Christ and what was going on at the time that he was on the earth, you could check out Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman historian. Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian. Suetonius, another Roman historian. Plinius Secundus, Pliny the Younger, governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor. Tertullian, jurist and theologian of Carthage, 
Justin Martyr, philosopher and apologist from Flavia Neapolis, the Jewish Talmuds, and you can consult these and other sources to learn about Caesar Augustus and Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, governor of Syria. We know about those men other than from the pages of Scripture. In fact, we know a lot about them. It was predicted by the prophet Micah that Bethlehem would be the place where the Savior would be born. But now we have a problem. Mary, this young girl to whom the angel spoke, lived in Nazareth. And Nazareth is about 80 miles away, and she would have no good reason to make the journey from Nazareth up to Bethlehem. Down on the map, but up in the mountains. Who wants to deal like that when you're expecting a child? Now, why wouldn't God choose a girl that lived in Bethlehem? That would certainly have facilitated the whole process, made it a lot simpler. But God doesn't do things the simple way sometimes. I hope that you've learned that, but you can trust Him. Perhaps He wanted to build the faith of the young couple as they were making their way up 2,564 feet to the little village of Bethlehem, up from the plains of Megiddo. Perhaps God wanted to encourage other young couples who were facing difficult situations. Perhaps he wanted Mary to be a stranger in town so that the social stigmacy of her pregnancy would be lessened. Or maybe he wanted to help the future Christmas card industry that would be launched about 1,800 years later. I mean, a baby born in his own house, that's no big deal. So we have a lot of depiction of what happened back at that time. So to get Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem was no problem for God. Joseph and Mary were descendants of King David, whose ancestral home was Bethlehem in Judea. So God decided to have the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, even as Paul was telling us about the other night, to pass a law requiring everyone to register for the census in his hometown, government to the rescue. That'll get the couple to Bethlehem, and whether they like it or not. And, of course, God can help them to arrive safely. We know from history that Augustus was a very methodical person and a good administrator. During his reign, he conducted a census in the empire about every 14 years. So the first would have been 8 B.C. when the census was decreed. But Herod probably put that off as long as he could, maybe as much as two years. Anybody wonder why? A thousand years before, David had decreed a census. And 70,000 citizens died in Israel. And you can read about that in First Chronicles 21:14. So people were very skeptical of those coming around taking a census in the nation of Israel. Probably we're told that we're told that Jesus was born somewhere around 6 or 4 B.C. So if the census had been delayed for two years from 8 B.C., that would put it in 6 B.C. We don't know exactly, but we do know historically that a certain man, Judas of Galilee, led a revolt against the second Roman census. And that would have been in A.D. 6. And this is mentioned by Luke in Acts 5.37. You can read about it. 
The point is that whenever it's possible to check out Luke's statements, he has proven to be impeccable as a historian. Well, Joseph and Mary did arrive safely, but uh, living through that experience of a baby to be born any day, any minute, would likely have brought a degree of fear and trepidation, especially to a young couple experiencing the birth of their first child. So we come to the apprehension of the parents. And in verse 5, we see, "...to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered." Now, what does it mean to be espoused? Betrothal is one way of looking at it. It was uh, a little more than our engagement. It was not full-blown marriage, but it was very serious. And the way it worked, a prospective groom would reach an agreement with a dad of a daughter, and then he would bring the 50-shekel biblical dowry or bride's price, and the marriage covenant was then established. Then the bride was set apart exclusively for this young man. But then there would be a year's time of separation and preparation. The deal was done, but the groom now is getting ready for this girl. And then he comes back secretly to pick her up and brings her to the bridal chamber. They have a big celebration, and then the marriage is consummated. So Mary and Joseph were espoused to each other, but they did arrive finally, safely, in Bethlehem. When he got there, they could find no room in the inn. Verse 7 says, She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Room is tapas, meaning space. There was no space for them wherever they were. Luke, in this verse, does not use the word for a commercial inn like a motel or a bed and breakfast. The hard-hearted innkeeper has received a lot of bad press through the years. But as Cody mentioned, the Bible doesn't say anything about an innkeeper. It says there was no room wherever they were. Now, Luke uses another word when he has the good Samaritan taking his wounded patient to an inn. And that word that Luke uses in that passage in Luke 10, is padakion, padakion. And that refers to a commercial inn or a public lodging place, sometimes known as a caravansary or a con. And this would be a place where travelers would stop. It's also used when Jesus sends some of his disciples to find the upper room, the upper chamber, the guest room, where they can celebrate the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. So we see that in Luke 22. So, according to William Christie, writing in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, maybe we have a little bit of the wrong idea. A cataloma is a guest room. According to what he says... Another Bible scholar, Kenneth Bailey, writing in Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, has the same thing. And here's what, uh, here's what he says in the International Bible Encyclopedia, William Christie. 
Judging from the word used and the conditions implied, we're led to believe that Joseph and Mary had at first expected reception in the upper room or mansel of the house of the Sheik of Bethlehem, who was probably a friend or member of the house of David. Being disappointed in that, they had to content themselves with the next best thing, the elevated platform alongside the interior of the stable on which those who had care of the animals generally slept. There, then, the Lord Jesus was born and laid in the safest, most convenient place, the nearest empty manger alongside of the elevated platform. Humble though the circumstances were, the family was preserved from the annoyance and evil associations of a public kind, and all the demands of delicacy and privacy were duly met from the international standard Bible encyclopedia. Well, why do you think God would want the Savior to be born in such humble circumstances? Maybe in a stable, maybe in a cave. Many times they built their homes around caves, whatever it was. I think he wanted to emphasize that the Christ, the Lamb of God, the sacrificial Lamb, would identify on earth with those who were poor and lowly. Other people could get in on it, but it might not be as easy to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ if you didn't need a Savior. And if you were a wealthy person and all of your needs were met, there was just not that much need to call on a Savior. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes... He became poor, that you, through his poverty, might be rich. Another paradox of the many that you see in Scripture. Well, we come to the exaltation of the angels while travelers were scurrying all over Bethlehem. The angels were up in the heavenly choir room getting warmed up. And then the gates of heaven opened, and down came the myriads of angels, and they would come with the news. They would proclaim the long-delayed message, the often-disregarded announcement. But they came to some people who were ready to listen. And they came with the message, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. How many times do we hear that and say that at Christmas? But if I really need a Savior, that sounds pretty good. Well, the comprehension of the angels, would they really grasp the significance of the greatest miracle in human history? Would they be able to understand this euangelizomahi, which is the verbal form of the gospel or good news? Or are they just going to sit there wondering what they're looking at? Good news, good tidings, a great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and that is the Jewish Messiah. And they were overjoyed because their concept of a Savior was much deeper than ours typically. Now, why did the shepherds get in on the first Christmas and all the big religious leaders and the townspeople missed out? Well, I don't know exactly, but we have seen already in the prophet Micah that it was predicted For you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. 
His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. If you have a Bible, open it up to Micah. Open it up to the book of Micah in the Minor Prophets. And while you're opening there, let me continue to read from that passage. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. Now, we know all about the prophet Micah predicting Bethlehem. That's one of those historical revelations 700 years before. But what about Micah chapter 4? Have you ever seen this one? Look in verse 6. Micah chapter 4 and verse 6. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. And I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forevermore. Now here's the verse that we're interested in, verse 8. And as for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come. The kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Daughter of Jerusalem, daughter of Zion, that just refers to the city's inhabitants. To you, tower of the flock, it will come. Now, the Jews had a tradition that at this place, Migdal Eder, about a mile from Bethlehem on the road to Jerusalem, this is where they thought that the announcement of the Messiah might come. And maybe they got that from that Micah chapter 4 passage. There's a passage in the Jewish Mishnah which leads to the conclusion that flocks pastured there were destined for the temple sacrifices. I've read that recently in several places. So the shepherds that were watching over their flock would not have been ordinary shepherds. Being an ordinary shepherd was bad enough. That was down on the low end of the echelon of vocations. But these were guys who, because of the nature of what they were doing, the temple sacrifices, they had to be out there all the time. And that meant they couldn't keep the Jewish ceremonial law, and so they would have been under the rabbi's ban. And they were the kind of the lowest of the low. A shepherd was thought of as a thief, typically, and he could not testify in court. But these guys were even the bottom rung of the shepherds. And that's who the angels appeared to. In fact, the interesting thing is the Mishnah passage also infers that their flocks lay out all year round because it mentions that they were out in the month of February, which is the rainy season. If they were going to be in any month, they certainly would have been in February. So Alfred Edersheim, writing in The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, says this, It was then on that wintry night of the 25th of December the shepherds watched the flocks destined for sacrificial services and in the very place consecrated by tradition as that where the Messiah was to first be revealed. End of quote. Migdal Eder. Now, when the, sh- when the angels appeared to the shepherds, they were not having their devotion time. They were just common men out on the job 
doing their responsibility. Why would God choose to announce the Savior's birth to these low guys on the totem pole there? Why not the religious leaders in Jerusalem? Why not the king? Why didn't he announce it to King Herod? The wise men, you remember, let him know what was happening. Well, I don't know all the answers to that, but maybe God chose to bring the good news to some men who were not biased against it by religion. You remember what the chief priests and scribes thought when they heard about a Savior being born. Perhaps it was fitting for the chief shepherd, who was also the Lamb of God, to be welcomed by shepherds who tended the sacrificial lambs. Perhaps, as we've noted, it was an indication of the kind of people who would tend to respond to the gospel message. Shepherds were trained to watch carefully, listen quietly, and come quickly. Notice they were not sleeping at home in their beds. They were keeping watch. It's a reminder to us that if we want to hear a word from God, we need to be spiritually alert, watching, looking in the Scripture. They knew full well that what they were seeing was real. I don't think they were drowsy. They certainly were not drunk. When those angels appeared, they knew what was happening instantly. Notice that they listened quietly and they came quickly and they didn't ask a bunch of silly questions to the angels. You say it's going to get be for all people? How are everybody going to get that message tonight? How are you guys going to do that? How long did it take you all to get here anyway? Is somebody going to pick us up to see the baby? What's the baby doing lying in a manger? None of that. They listened and then they moved quickly. They came with haste, the Scripture says, because they were men who knew how to take quick action and get the job done. So what is it that we don't want to miss in all of this? We don't want to miss the Savior. Gabriel spoke to Joseph, recorded in Matthew 1:21, And she, Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. It's a Savior who saves you moment by moment from sin. He'll save you from harm or through harm, and he will save you from eternal death. What does it mean to receive the gift of Christ as your Savior? Well, it means simply, first of all, that you have to recognize that you need forgiveness for your sin. And that means admitting that I am a sinner. It's accepting the free gift of salvation through faith in Christ, the Messiah, who came to bring salvation. That's what the Philippian jailer began to understand. He believed, he accepted by faith what Christ had done for him. It means to commit yourself to Christ and to his authority on earth, the body of Christ the church, and there may be authority that God has placed you under in your family. It means, according to Christ, denying yourself and taking up your cross daily and following Him. Receiving the gift of a Savior brings special privileges, but it also brings specific responsibilities. He's no longer a Savior in a manger. He's now sitting at the right hand of God the Father and He's ruling and He's offering this invitation. Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
And because of that, we can join with the angels and say blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you that we have heard this amazing historical account of what happened on that first Christmas evening when the angels appeared to tell the shepherds that a Savior had been born. We thank you for all of the implications of that message. We thank you, Lord, that because you came, we have churches, we have hospitals, we have orphanages, we have all kinds of organizations that help people. And we thank you, Lord, that we have enjoyed hundreds of years in this nation of a great spiritual heritage because you came to this earth and our forefathers believed the Christmas message. Lord, I ask as we have a time of prayer this morning that you would open up hearts of gratitude as we lift up our hearts and our voices to you. And Lord, remind us of things for which we need to be grateful and things that we need to pray about during this Christmas time. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who has not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that this might be the time. What better time than Christmas time? If there's someone here today who has strayed from the path and who has many things crowding out thoughts of Christ at Christmas, then I pray that this would be a time to be cleansed in heart and mind and to be able to rejoice in your coming to this earth to teach us how to live and to die in our place. We ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.